Hello everyone and welcome back to Just a Theory. We're going to start this off with a true crime unsolved mystery case. Um, I feel like it is super perfect for a good theory so let's just jump right into it. We are going to be in Circleville, Ohio in late 1976 when several of the town's approximately 14,000 residents began to receive anonymous handwritten letters in the mail. Uh, these letters were super weird. There's a few weird things about them. Um, they were written in all caps, but it was like block style letters. And all of the letters were actually postmarked from Columbus, which was about 30 miles from Circleville. And none of the letters had a return address. So the first person we're going to talk about is Gordon Macy. He was the local school superintendent, and he was basically described as having the ideal suburban life. He had a wife and a son, and it was said that typically in his jobs, all of his female employees, like, swooned over him. He was a handsome man. I will post a photo of him for you to go and look at. So on March 3rd of 1977, he received his first letter, um, and it basically said that according to whoever the writer's was, girlfriend. Um, he had asked her out many times and made her feel uncomfortable. And he told Gordon that it, quote, must stop at once for the good of the schools and families. So at this point, he is threatening Gordon to take this information to the school board um, and let them know what Gordon is doing. So at this time, the letter writer starts to write the school board and even sent one to the vice principal of the school that accused Gordon of sexual harassment. So in these letters, the letter writer begins to call out a specific bus driver, actually. Uh, but the weirdest thing about it is that he never said her name. He only used her driver number, which was 62917, which brings us to our next person who actually becomes the main target of the Circleville writer. Driver 62917's name was Mary Gillespie, and she was married to Ron Gillespie, and they shared two children together. So the first few letters that Mary gets, she ignores them, and she doesn't say anything to her husband. She just kind of hopes that it will go away. The first letter to Mary said, quote, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. End quote. So like I said, she doesn't say anything. She just puts the letters away and hopes it'll go away. It doesn't because... Um, at the beginning of April of 1977, her husband, Ron, receives his first letter. So he took the letter to his wife and basically was like, what is this? Um, and his wife said that she knew about the letters, she had received the letters, but she did deny the affair. Um, but Ron's first letter actually warned Ron that if he didn't do something about the affair, then his life was in danger. So that was like really weird. Um, two weeks later, on April 14th, Ron got his second letter, and it read, quote, Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. You are a pig defender. You are also a pig. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CB, posters, signs, billboards, until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. I followed him for weeks since last summer and have seen her meet him several times. You will see this is no joke. End quote. 
Surprisingly, this was actually the first letter that had a return address, but jokes on Ron and Mary, the return address was actually the address of Gordon Macy. So at this point, the letters have kind of um, started to change a little bit. Like the original letters, they seemed to be like a more rounded box style, but now they were kind of like more square. And also a weird thing, at this point, the writer started using colons all the time. Like instead of periods or commas, colon. Colon was the only punctuation the writer knew. Um, it was actually originally believed that only one person was writing all these letters. Um, and they were also believed to be a very educated person, but wanted to appear as if they weren't. And it seemed like they eventually began making errors on purpose in order to like kind of make themselves look dumber. So after the letters continued to pour in, Mary and Ron decided that they were going to confide in Ron's sister and brother-in-law, Paul and Karen Freshour. Fun fact... Paul was actually one of the prison guards taken hostage during the 1968 30-hour riot at the Ohio State Penitentiary. The inmates actually threatened to burn the officers alive and also threatened to decapitate them. And during this riot, nine different buildings at the state pen were actually burnt down. Okay, now let's go on to next person in our story, David Longberry. David Longberry was a co-worker of Mary's that had asked Mary out, um, but Mary declined. So Ron, Paul, and Karen all agreed that David was the letter writer. After Mary presented this information to him, she was like, hey, I think David wrote this letter, these letters. Um, so the four of them decided to write David a letter of their own. And they basically warned David that they knew what was going on. They knew he was behind the letters and that if he didn't stop, then they were going to take the information to the police. So after they sent this letter out, the letter stopped. But yep, you guessed it. Two weeks later, a sign appeared actually on the side of the road that accused Gordon of having a quote, sexual relationship with Ron and Mary's 12-year-old daughter, and even went as far as putting the little girl's name on the sign. So after this initial sign, signs began to pop up everywhere on top of the letters, and they would pop up every single day, and they would pretty much only pop, not only, but they mostly popped up on Mary's bus route every day. Um, once this started, this is kind of sad to me, Ron would get up every morning about one to two hours before his shift at work and go find all of these signs and tear them down, throw them away, get rid of them, whatever. Every single day, he would go down the main route. They were always posted, and if he saw one here or there, he would go grab it, whatever. That was pretty messed up. But kudos to him. Now, on August 18th, Mary is headed to Florida with her sister-in-law, and Ron receives a phone call. So his daughter basically said whoever he was on the phone with obviously pissed him off. He was yelling. He was frustrated. He hung up the phone abruptly, and then he went and grabbed his gun, kissed his kids, and left the house. And this was about 10 p.m. So about 10.25, Ron crashed his truck and died. So upon initial investigation, the coroner was like, Ron's blood alcohol level was .016, which if you don't know is two times the legal limit. And Ron's family was like, oh, hell no. 
Ron did not even drink. He hadn't drank any alcohol that day. He was not, he didn't consume alcohol regularly at all. He didn't even like it. So his family was like, yeah, no, we're not going for that. Um, also, he was like driving through an intersection that he traveled through every single day. So, I mean, yes, things can happen. You never know. But that was an argument that was made. They also discovered that one shot had been fired from Ron's gun, but there was no bullet holes in the car and there was no casing in the car that, or the truck that was ever recovered. So we'll never know about that. Originally, the sheriff actually suspected foul play and he said he immediately had a suspect in mind, but the suspect, the suspect was never named and quote, passed a polygraph. And then boom, suspect is no longer a suspect, just disappeared into thin air apparently. So when Paul contacted the sheriff to like check up on the case and check up on the suspect, it was like the sheriff had like done a complete 180 on Paul and was like, it was just an accident. There was no foul play. Ron was under the influence and he wrecked and died. So a little background on the sheriff, just so you can kind of get an idea of what's going on here. Dwight Radcliffe was the sheriff of Circleville, Ohio at this time. Um, and when he retired in 2013, he was actually the longest serving sheriff in the United States, serving 12 consecutive terms, totaling 48 years as sheriff of Pickaway County, Ohio. Um, Dwight was actually second generation. He succeeded his father and Dwight's son succeeded him in 2013. So during all this, um, Sheriff Radcliffe was actually like in the process trying to run for president of the National Sheriff's Association, which he did run, he won, and he served. Now, back to the story. The letters actually continued after Ron's death, and now they were saying that Sheriff Radcliffe covered up Ron's murder and that he was corrupt, blah, blah, blah. So Mary admits to having an affair with Gordon Massey, but said that the affair didn't begin until after the letter started. Um, okay, sis. Yeah, we've always, we've all been through something like that. Yeah, sis. Okay. Anyways, on February 7th, 1983, Mary is driving on her route and sees an extremely obscene sign about her daughter. And so she decides to stop her bus Get out of the bus and go up the sign down. Um, I really couldn't find a definite answer of if there were kids on the bus or not. Some sources said there were kids on the buses. Some sources say there were no kids on the bus. So I don't really know about that. I would hope there was no children on the bus when she did this. Um, so Mary goes and she snatches down the sign and she notices that there's a wooden box attached to a string that's attached to the sign. So Mary brings the sign in the box back onto the bus and she tries to get the box open, but she can't open the box. So she goes home and she pries the box open with a knife and she sees that a gun is inside with a string tied around the trigger. And this was like a poorly made booby trap that was desi designed basically to go off when she pulled the sign down. Um, now... She takes this to the police. After she's tampered with it, took it home, instead of taking it straight to the police when she saw it was a box, nope, she took it home, blah, blah, blah. 
now we're at the police station and they have the gun and it looks as though like somebody has tried to file the serial number off but they didn't really do a good job so they were like yeah we can still get the serial number off they sent it away got the serial number and guess who it was registered to go ahead guess guess who it was registered to it was registered to paul mary and ron's brother-in-law but go figure paul said that the gun was stolen quote long ago but of course you already know this made paul a prime suspect and honestly he was really the only suspect at this time um but I will say it was for good reason because uh, there were like a couple other things that really just kind of took the coincidence of this being his gun out of it. So first, of course, we have the gun. Um, second thing, Paul actually worked in Columbus. So he was there every day. And if you remember, this is where all the letters were postmarked from. Um, third, which to be honest, this is like super questionable and I don't really think this one is fair, um, but the sheriff gave Paul a copy of one of the letters and basically told him, copy this exactly as you see it, just to see, obviously, if his handwriting matched. And if you know, that's not really how handwriting tests works, but okay, we'll get into that later. Um, fourth, Paul actually took a vacation day the day that the booby trap was discovered. So all of these facts put together, okay, that's suspicious. And it made Paul the prime and only suspect. And Paul claimed that at this time, the sheriff said to him, quote, even if you didn't write the obscene and threatening letters, I'm going to make such an example out of you that whoever is writing them will quit, end quote. So in preparation for his trial, Paul actually checked himself into the Southwest Mental Health Center with the intention that he was going to plead insanity. He eventually dropped this idea and just pled not guilty to attempted murder. Um, so during the trial, it was stated that approximately 494 of the letters were a match with cross-reference writing from Paul's job. So not just what he wrote that day when the sheriff handed him the letter and said, hey, copy this. They got documents from his job and was like, okay. Now, this is also allegedly. Um, it was also brought to light that the day the booby trap was found, there was another bus driver that saw the sign before Mary got there, but they didn't see the box. And then there was another bus driver who was after Mary... Um, that said they saw a tall, skinny man with dusty hair where the booby trap was, who, when she drove by, seemed to, like, turn and act like he was peeing on a fence post. And she said it was like he was, like, trying to hide himself so she couldn't see his face. That was the vibe she got from it, she said. Um, so this man was actually driving a yellow Camino. Guess who owned... A yellow Camino. Just guess. Go ahead. It was Karen's brother. Paul's wife, you know, Ron's sister. Karen's brother owned a yellow Camino. But here's the real tea. Here is the real tea. Karen and Paul actually got a divorce after Ron's death. And 
little side note, Karen accused Paul of like being abusive to her, but the judge sided with Paul and he got full custody of the house, all the money, everything. And Karen had to go live in a trailer on Mary's property. So here's another sip of hot tea. This is the real tea. The physical description of the suspicious man that was seen was, guess what, guess what, guess what? Karen's new lover. So now, despite all of this information, this key information, Paul was found guilty and he was sentenced to the maximum of 25 years for attempted murder. So while Paul was in prison, guess what? You already know. The letters continued to pour in from Columbus. By the way, Paul was in a prison in Lima. I guess that's how you say it, Ohio. And it was like 100 miles from Columbus. Also, he was in prison. And because the letters like continued to pour into people in Circleville while he was incarcerated, Paul was actually um, placed on a no pen, no paper, no mail ban. And he said that he was like searched regularly. His bunk was always searched. He was strip searched and he was constantly placed in solitary confinement even though the letters still continued and the sheriff was like yeah he's writing the letters he's writing the letters even though the prison guards everybody was like there's no way he's writing the letters he is not writing the letters um so at this time now the letters really started to kind of go in on the prosecutor for Paul's case um, his name was Roger Klein, and they actually accused Roger of getting a school teacher pregnant and then murdering her to cover it up. So, this part of the little information was kind of confusing to me. Uh, I'm not really sure what went on here, but from what I can gather, it was that he got the school teacher pregnant and then he had the baby killed, but not the teacher, because it was noted in several sources. Um, that Sheriff Radcliffe actually went to the mother and the husband of that woman and basically asked them not to say anything since the story had come out, not to say anything about it, keep it on the hush. And apparently the mother of the child confirmed this with a local news source. I don't know about that. I'm not 100% sure. That is just part of the stuff I found while I was digging all this stuff up. But like I said, I don't know if there's any truth to that. So I don't want to say this is what happened um but now the letters also start going at the coroner pretty hard as well his name was ray carroll and these letters actually accused him of molesting and raping multiple children and they also accused sheriff radcliffe of covering all of this up so in 1990 paul was denied for parole and at this time he received a letter himself while he was in prison it read quote now, when are you going to believe that you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? End quote. So throughout this whole time, Paul maintains his inno innocence. And he actually pins a 164-page letter to the FBI, which I actually read, and I'll get to that later. Um, but first, we're going to rewind a little bit. So, shortly after the divorce, Karen actually went to Paul's sister and asked for Paul's typewriter that his sister had borrowed to write her book. And you guessed it! Between the time of the divorce and um, sometime before Paul's conviction, some of the letters actually started to be sent out typed instead of handwritten. Um, 
So that's pretty much it, like as far as the story goes, uh, the facts, whatever you want to say. Uh, but before I do get into my theory, I will touch a little bit on it while I talk about this 164-page dossier. Um, some of the key things that really stood out to me while I was reading this and I think are super important to mention are that some of the letters contained arsenic. And he said this in his letter. I don't know if this was public knowledge at the time or if he just knew this. So that was kind of like, mm. um, and there was a part where he listed off several meetings between Mary and Gordon, like proving their affair. And I thought that was really weird too, because it almost seemed as if he had stalked them, which that also could have been public knowledge at this time. I, I don't really know. I thought it was weird. He also said that Gordon was actually asked to leave the prior school district that he worked at because he had an inappropriate relationship with one of his employees. Paul also said that he had passed three polygraphs and a voice stress test. Now, fun fact, there are actually very, very few states. Well, I guess not very, very few, but there are a few states that actually will consider polygraphs to be admissible evidence uh, because they are not, quote, scientifically sound or trusted. Um, only 18 out of 50 states, which is 36%, barely over one-third, sometimes allow polygraphs to be used as evidence. All right, now, back to the facts here. Um, Paul also said that Karen actually told Mary that Paul wrote the letters after they divorced. She... Not that he wrote the letters after they divorced, but once they divorced, Karen went and told Mary, hey, Paul wrote all these letters. He also claimed that Karen stayed in the sheriff's home during his trial and that she and Mary both failed a polygraph test. Okay. That's going to wrap it up pretty much for the facts and the stories. If you thought it was long, get over it. I'm sorry. I needed you to understand why I was so back and forth of my theory. I really want to think that Paul is innocent. Uh, when I like originally just heard about the case before I did any of my own research, any of my own digging or anything, I definitely thought he was innocent. But I'm not going to lie. What really made me question his innocence was the 164-page letter. Um, it was like basically meant to be a plea for his innocence, but really the vibe I got from it and after I read it, it seems like it was like pretty much directly in line with the letter writer's demands, if you want to call them that, whatever. Um, he like really went in on the corruption of Gordon, the sheriff, the coroner, and Judge Klein. Um, and he just like, he kind of made several comments that really actually sounded like the writer, the writer's letters. He continuously referenced how the actions of the adults were dangerous to the children in the community, um, which the letter writer did that too. I mean, there was several comments that the letter writer himself said about affecting the children, even though probably... What they were doing really had nothing to do with the children, but hey, to each their own. I also want to add, here's another fact, that in 1998, David Longberry, if you don't remember the first person that they thought was Mary's co-worker, 
Um, he was actually on the run for raping an 11-year-old girl. And it was also found out that the molestin, molestation and rape accusations against the coroner were true. Okay, so it's just a theory, but I actually think that Karen was the letter writer. Just a theory, but I think Karen was the letter writer and she set Paul up. Just a theory, you know. But I think that Karen knew about Mary and Gordon's affair um, because obviously we all know it was definitely going on before the letters. And maybe knew that they were like conspiring to get rid of Ron. And maybe like the letter to Ron saying his life would be in danger if he didn't have Mary in the affair. Like maybe it was more of a warning and not a threat. Um, just a theory, but I think Ron's murder had nothing to do with the letters or the letter writer and had everything to do with the affair and Gordon Macy. Um, there was somewhere that I read that Paul actually like really idealized Ron and Mary's marriage. Uh, but Paul and Karen like they weren't really too good together, and they were kind of going through a rocky time. So just a theory, but I think maybe Karen was aware of the affair, and like maybe it like pissed her off to know that her marriage was going through it while her husband was sitting here idealizing this marriage um, that was like involved in an affair. And honestly, Karen gave me like super vindictive vibes from everything I read. But also... I do feel like someone had to keep the letters going while he was in prison. Um, Karen also, like, she had a lot to gain from Paul going to prison for this. Like, she got the house back. She got the kids, all of his money. She also even got his retirement money. So, uh, I'm going to say it was probably Karen. There are actually, like, many, many theories out there concerning this case. And, obviously, we'll probably never know the truth of what actually happened because pretty much everyone now is deceased. Um... So, yeah, we'll probably never really know who wrote the letters. Um, also, apparently I forgot to say this. I was just remembered. But when Paul was released from prison, the letters stopped. Like, they just slowly stopped, and that was it. They were done. There was no more letters. Um, but I do have an honorable mention that the theory is that the letter writer was actually not one person, which honestly I can get behind because if you look at the letters, um, just like from the first letter to the last letters, the handwriting changes. Like, yeah, it's caps lock, block style, but it definitely changes. And I could totally see this being like some kind of, okay, here's my opportunity to go spill this person's tea. You know, it became a like a thing. Like, everybody wrote their own letters to their own enemies. You know, whatever the case was. Um, I do think it originally, like, probably was a person. Maybe it could have even been um, Gordon Macy's wife, who was like, bitch, stay away from my husband. I shouldn't have said that. I did. But maybe that's what it was. Um, but I think that multiple writers is a good theory because... I mean, just looking at the facts of the case, like, it is so hard to just pinpoint 
one person. Like there are so many things that tie so many people into it that could have been them, could have been this, but okay, this makes sense that it was you, but this means it absolutely wasn't you. So I don't know. It's just really, really thought provoking. Um, there's there's just too much reasonable doubt to say you did this, and no one admitted it, obviously, even though I guess technically writing letters isn't a crime. I don't really know what that would be. So, what are your theories? What are your theories on the case? Who do you think was the Circleville rider? And who or what do you think is responsible for Ron's death? Um, I'm going to post some pictures on the Instagram. Go check them out at justatheory.podcast. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Um, And feel free to leave a comment with your theories, whatever. Uh, Thanks for listening. See you next time.